everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. Charlie Munger, in his list of four principles of investing, says as his third principle that we would like to have management with integrity and talent. And he says we would like to have it, not that we have to have it, which always makes me laugh because why would we like to? Have, I mean, to me, we have to have that, right? But he says that because it's so hard to know. And because he knows and has a number of times chosen companies that he acknowledges did not have management with integrity and talent. It's really hard to know about people. I mean, people are hard to judge, especially when for 99% of us little guy investors, we are never going to go meet the actual person running a company. The only way we can know is through their writings and through news reports about them and through interviews with them. So it's all third hand, essentially, except for the stuff they write to us ourselves, which is the shareholder letter from the CEO that they put out with each annual report. Now, not all CEOs write this letter. It's not a required letter, but the good ones do. And what we're talking about today is a book that analyzes those letters to such an extent that the author says that she can actually determine whether or not a company is going to do well or badly based on their letter. It's pretty extraordinary. And I announced this book pick. It's our first ever inaugural invested book club pick. I announced it a couple of weeks ago to give you all time to go out and buy the book and read the book cover to cover. And I know every single one of you did that. But if you miss the episode, this is what we're doing. The book is called Investing Between the Lines, and the author is L.J. Rittenhouse, and we're so fortunate to have her here on the podcast today for an interview. So let me give her a little intro, because we're so thrilled to have her on the podcast. L.J. Rittenhouse was an investment banker at Lehman Brothers before founding her executive coaching and investor relations firm, Rittenhouse Rankings, and her extensive research on the predictive power of CEO writings and their candor has been recognized by none other than Warren Buffett, among many others, for creating more trustworthy companies. Thank you for being here, L.J. Rittenhouse. It's a great pleasure to be on this podcast. Thank you. Well, this is actually your second time on the Invested Podcast because we had the pleasure of doing a live podcast with you in Omaha a couple of months ago at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, which was the first time we've ever done it. And it was so fun. Yes, it was, it was really great to make history. That's, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. So today, rather than talking about the meeting or anything else, what I really want to focus on is your incredible book, Investing Between the Lines, which I read in about four or five hours, and I just burned through it and couldn't believe how it was the first book I'd ever read that talked about the stuff I'm trying to do in investing, trying to understand companies in a different perspective than just pure numbers. And what I would love to know is you came out of a numbers-based background. You came from Lehman Brothers as an investment banker. What got you out of that and into this world of words and analyzing the way people write? My career at Lehman Brothers was uh, sterling. I loved working there, uh, but that was a number of decades ago. And it was a time when... Uh, 
the the firm, not just Lehman Brothers, but but the other investment banking houses, there was a, a fundamental principle that was understood by everybody who worked there, which is <clears throat> our job was to serve our clients. Hmm. Um, and so it required us, that was, it was a simpler time, there's no social media, but it required us to really understand their businesses and also to develop relationships. It was a relationship-based bank. And uh, that was something that I truly believed in and I, and I just enjoyed uh, when I was working there, uh, using the platform of Lehman Brothers to solve client problems. And so <clears throat> when I decided to leave Lehman Brothers, um, interestingly, I had the CEOs I had worked with called me up and said, we still want to work with you. Uh, hmm. What can we do? And at that time, uh, investor relations was a very new practice. I said, well, Look, as an investment banker, I advised you on multi-million, multi-billion dollar deals to improve the value proposition of your company, to improve the valuation. Uh, but what, how well do investors understand and know your business? What perceptions do investors have about your leadership that colors the way that they analyze your value. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to know? Because by communicating effectively with investors, you can add value in the most cost-efficient way possible. Absolutely. Had they encountered that idea before or were you one of the first to talk about that? I was early on doing this. I was early on doing this and it was so exciting because uh, it, it allowed me to invent a lot of new practices, including, uh, you know, I've always had, I've always had the belief that our words create the future, that each of us as a human being is an individual power plant. We're a power, power factory. So the words that we use are energetic. Now, are they highly energetic, influential, inspiring, world-changing, business-changing words? Or are they rote, uh, de-energizing, dispiriting words? Uh, those are the kind of the, the polarities of a continuum. And so I wanted the CEOs to be able to see themselves as leaders in the way that other investors saw them. Now, how could we do that? Um, and remember that about this time, this was when the cult of the CEO was, was developing, meaning that uh, analysts would write that, gee, about 60% of the valuation of a company is based on the reputation of the CEO. Well, really? that's the case. It's, yes, yes. Uh, reputational value was becoming... Uh, and, and this was just pre the, the, the dot-com collapse. So of this was, was back not. in the, what, early 90s? Uh, late, late 90s. Okay. Late 90s. So, so uh, the, the idea that, uh, you know, a, a CEO could change the, the whole trajectory of a company and add uh, incredible value had uh, been gaining traction. But, of course, that, that was 
not long lived. But what I did was I began looking at the letters that the CEOs, my CEO clients would publish in their annual reports. Now, this is not a required communication. It is, mm-hmm. it is voluntary and uh, it's, it offered a window into the quality of the leadership of the CEO. That's how I saw it. And so I began reading the shareholder, my client's shareholder letters. And then I began reading the letters of their competitors and their peers. And as I read more and more letters, I began to see that there are patterns. Now, of course, patterns is behind the whole AI trend today. Uh, Machine learning, artificial intelligence, linguistic uh, searching and semantics. So I was doing this early on, and once I observed patterns, I then was was then able to compare how different CEOs described their business, how different CEOs described the way they related with their employees, with their customers. And it was so interesting to see these differences, and I would show them to my clients, and they were astonished. And Hmm. they said, wow, we had no idea anybody was doing this. I, and I bet nobody else was. And they weren't. <laughs> and even today, many people are not doing this. Well, you made a great point, which is that the shareholder letter is not a required communication. The SEC certainly has no demand for a letter to shareholders. It's something that CEOs started doing. Actually, do you know the history of how that got started? Was it just kind of meant to give a nice, warm and fuzzy introduction to the annual report? Uh, that is certainly the purpose of it. It's interesting. That's something I should ask Warren. Like, yeah. how did he, how does he remember? I love how you and Warren Buffett are, are such good friends that you can just call him Warren. Well, well, this is something that's so near and dear to his heart because he shares he shares this belief that words create our future, and that's why he spent six months writing his shareholder letter. Six or he months. has in the past, six months. He'll start his letter in August, and um, and and uh, and of course, the letter for Berkshire Hathaway is basically their investor relations program, because mm-hmm. Warren doesn't meet with individual or institutional investors, and so th- what he's what he does or he has done in the past is write a letter that's that when you finish reading it, it seems. Like you've just had a meeting. You were just sitting in his office and he was saying, well, Laura, you know, it's been a year since I reported to you on the business and you probably want to know what's been happening. Well, here it is. And um, he would describe not just events, but the, the significance of these events. He would describe outcomes, but not just what the outcomes were, but what contributed, what were the unique aspects of the business or the of the times that uh, allowed Berkshire Hathaway to create these outcomes. Um, I did an interview with him a number of years ago and asked him, you know, why, um, why do you spend so much time on writing a letter? And he said, well, you know, you just have to have the right word. <laughs> You've got to have the right word. In fact, here's a funny side note. He learned this lesson from a woman who wrote soap operas. <laughs> what? He was, he was uh, at a dinner uh, in, in the Calgary Olympics. And um, 
he sat next to this woman and they talked about writing. And she said, you know, you just have to have the right word. And he said, yes, because if you don't have the right word, you haven't got your thinking correct yet. Oh, gosh. So that statement says Warren Buffett and other really savvy CEOs understand that the process of writing this letter is a strategic act. It's a strategic and it's an accountability act, action, not just act, but action. Meaning in writing the letter, one becomes clear about not just what happened, but where are we and where are we going? And precision is incredibly important. You have to have the right word. Right word. If you don't have the right word, you don't have your thinking correct. And that is a business risk. How is it a business risk? Well, if your thoughts aren't clear, you're going to be doing things that could put you at risk of losing money. And I think it's, it's I like to think of it as like the, what happens when I go to the gym. I'm going to the gym to become physically, um, physically alert, physically uh, uh, sustained, I can be, I can sustain effort over time. Um, there are those things. It's, it's, it's any discipline requires us to take certain steps. So the discipline uh, for a CEO is I'm navigating. I am the chief. I'm the captain of this ship. I am the chief navigator. I've got to navigate my company through the dangers and also make sure we're on course to where we want to go and uh, and to realize the the objectives that we want to achieve in going there. And let's face it, the, it's so interesting. CEOs have finally realized that the world is changing. <laughs> How so? Well, interestingly, back uh, before around the time of the great collapse in 2007, 2008, I can, and I'm going to do, a, 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 I'll put this in the chapter in my next book, but so many CEOs would write, oh, the world is changing. Oh my goodness, we're going to have to change. Uh, and of course, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said this many years ago, you cannot step into the same river twice. So uh, now there are words that CEOs are using that you could not find 10 years ago in their shareholder letters. They're talking about evolving, evolution. Okay, now we have Darwin, right? Evolution of the survival of the fittest. If you're evolutionary astute, uh, you've got to see uh, what, what's changing around you, take um, appropriate actions to, to uh, guard yourself defensively and also play a strong offense. And so the CEO, as you mentioned, is the captain of the ship, is the person that you look at through these letters to see if it's somebody we can trust, somebody who's going to take the ship on the right course. How did you start and what kind of system did you develop to create proper analysis around that? I mean, I think the cool thing about what you do is that it's actually quite quantitative. Oh, it's all, what it does is it quantifies the amount of what I call, what I call candor, what is candor, the courage to shine light into dark places, 
mm-hmm. and uh, quantifies the lack of candor, or what I call in the book an acronym FOG, standing for fact deficient, obfuscating generalities. Fact deficient, obfuscating generalities create fog. <laughs> That's big time fog. Yeah. Yeah. And and I need I think it's really important, Danielle, to make this point, which I want to underscore right now. So interesting. Why should we read shareholder letters? Because yes, they're written by the captain of the ship, the CEO, but the captain embodies the corporate culture. The captain embodies the values. You know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, CEOs, they write post-it, post-it note values. You know, we, we, we honor integrity and excellence and, you know, words on a page without any support. So when, when one is finding a letter that at the end of it, you can say, as with Warren Buffett, wow, it feels like I just had a meeting with the CEO. For example, I'm reading Sherwin-Williams' letter right now. The paint store company, you would think, well, that's an interesting business, but you know, not nothing to write home about. That's one of the highest performing companies in our survey, not just uh, candor-wise, but also financially. Well, and you and, mention it in the book as well, yeah. which is from 2012. So that's been a high performer for a long time. Well, and what's so interesting? So if the CEO embodies the company, you want to know what happens when there's a change in CEO. Absolutely. And last year was a banner year for CEO change. So when we, when we, as soon as we get our report out, which will be in a few weeks, uh, we're going to be able to see which companies seem to be, uh, as the word used, seamlessly navigating from the prior CEO's leadership and voice and values to the current CEO. There's an amazing example of that that you write about in the book in Home Depot, where there was an original CEO whose name was Blank, I believe. And then Arthur Blank, right? Mm-hmm. And you said that his letters were relatively full of candor. You liked them. Generally, they were ranked, I think, somewhere around the top 20 of the Rittenhouse rankings, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then another CEO came in, Nardelli, in the year 2000. And, <laughs> and you analyzed his letter. And I thought it was so interesting because I would not have picked up on any negativity. You say the fact that he uses the words powerful culture and it's an honor and a privilege to write this letter and that he went out and met every Home Depot manager were actually examples of fog. I would have taken that as positive. (laughs) And it made me realize how deeply you go because what you said was, now why didn't he go meet with the actual employees? Why is he using vague words like powerful culture instead of describing what he's actually talking about? Yeah, Yeah, well, there he is. He came from, you wonder what boards are thinking, right? Do they really understand their culture? He came from the GE culture, a totally top-down culture, and we all see where this led. Hmm. So he brought that top-down values into a company that was all bottom-up. When you wrote Arthur Blank's letters, you... You were with him on the store floors talking to the orange aproned employees. The people loved him. He, had, he, he garnered the kind of uh, respect and affection that Jim Senegal at Costco uh, had garnered during his tenure as CEO. So, uh, yeah, it's, 
And you uh, were when able I, to tell yeah, that. Through those kinds of words. And that's where I think the education is from reading your book is because I would have just taken that on its face as like, oh, he's being nice. Okay. But he met every Home Depot store manager. That sounds like a decent idea. Well, and I, I wouldn't have been able to see those things had I not thoroughly analyzed and um, in- integrated the, my think- into my thinking all the great work that uh, all the great letters that uh, Arthur Blank and his colleagues had authored over the years. That's a great point. So it was the comparison that really showed the differences. Yes, absolutely. You want to see that continuum. Tell me how you set up like a actual quantitative ranking of these letters. How do you take words and quantify them? Well, wow. Do we have two hours for this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wrote a whole book about it. So, (laughs) and everyone by now has read the book. (laughs) Yay. So they know, but, but the book, you know, the book describes how you assign certain numerical values to certain kinds of words, but I think it's so much more than that. Uh, So let me take a time out and describe the structure of the book. So uh, I wanted to write exactly in the way that you're portraying this, Danielle. I wanted to write a book so people could understand the methodology that we use and and gain insights so that they could apply this learning to their own analyses. Now, the book is organized based on the seven systems that make up a candor advantage business, okay? So what does that mean? So that means there are seven chapters for each one of the seven systems. Now, these systems are all interconnected um, and they're all defined by specific topics. Remember I talked about finding patterns in the words, the shareholder letters of my CEO clients. And these patterns turned into topics. So I realized, gosh, in in, in just about every letter that I read, uh, a lot of CEOs are talking about their competitive advantages. Well, that's, that's a topic that defines their execution of strategy. So the other thing that you look for in a letter is, if, is this letter executed well? Because if you execute a letter well, you're probably executing your business well. Mm. So and competitive advantage, that's, that's one of the things that Warren writes about so frequently, the moat. What's the moat of your business? What do you have uh, that you that others don't have that you gain advantage from? So uh, out of I, I identified from this these uh, reading multiple letters that about 120 140 topics that uh, that then I organized into this model of uh, under each topic fell under one of the seven systems. Now. Of these seven systems, I will tell you, five are likely to be found in just about any other management consultant business model that exists, right? Okay, and what are those? Well, what's the strategy of the company? What's the vision? What about the um, leadership? Strategy, vision, leadership. Uh, Some, not all, focus on what I call accountability systems. How do I know that the CEO is being accountable for executing its strategy and realizing its vision, and then stakeholder relationships. So that's a pretty 
fundamental package describing the important elements of a business. There's two things that are left out. Yeah. One is capital stewardship. Hmm. Capital stewardship, which as you, as you may recall from the book is the center. I put this. So what my higher, my business is not hierarchical. My model is not hierarchical. Most businesses are here's the top. And then we go down to the bottom. That's so masculine, right? That does not work in a networked world. In a networked world, everything is interconnected. And that's what I do in the system I describe in the book. But the center of that, so it's a hub and spoke concept. The center is capital stewardship. What is the most important question you need to, under, you need to answer to determine how much you can trust management? Well, are they... In their words, are they showing me that they feel they are entitled to my money or that they have attitudes of entrustment, that they believe they, I am entrusting them and they accept that they are there to steward the money that I give them? What are the top things that you look for in order to see if you can trust them with your capital? Well, the top, the top, <laughs> the top indicator is just what the percentage of fog is in the shareholder letter. That's one of the most important metrics. So I've, for each one of the topics that I just described, we assign point values, which are based on how important these are, how vital these are to business success. So for example, uh, in in capital stewardship, we look for statements of goals, either financial goals or operating goals. For operating goals, if one uh, says, you know, our goal is to increase our safety performance 95%. Okay, so they get, uh, they get five points for stating the goal an additional five points for giving us a, a, a quantitative measure. Very simple, right? I love the way and you it, say that. It's very just like you get five points, you get a cookie. <laughs> you get five, exactly <laughs> five. You can get a maximum of ten points. If you use a less powerful word like objective, you only get four points for a qualitative goal statement and eight points for a qualitative statement and a quantitative measure. Very, very, you know, it's not arbitrary. I, I'm training some new people on the coding system now. And these are people who are scientists. They're biologists. They've never taken a business course. In fact, they say, we're selling our souls. <laughs> and If only they knew so, how much they're helping the world, though. Exactly. I think, yeah, they're, they're getting to a, an understanding of that over time. But they, uh, it's so fascinating to see how intuitively after just a, like, let's say three or four weeks, they're able to say, oh yes, that's a three. That's a 10. That's a five. Hmm. So it just takes some practice. What's the, you it, said that there uh, were two things that don't show up on your typical management list. One is capital stewardship. What was the other one? The second one is the most important one, which is the system of candor. Okay, I was there, you know, what's the, like, it's, it's really kind of getting at commitments uh, and there are actions related to those commitments. So I'm committed to operate my business so you know 
that I am entrusting, you can trust me, I am entrusted with your money, not entitled to it. Now, candor is um, the uh, evidence, a commitment to being as clear and as disciplined and as precise and as um, um, uh, it, it kind of personally, personally accountable in the way that I, that I communicate uh, so that there's very little fog. So candor is low fog. However, Absolutely. however, it's not possible to see where candor is. You see where it isn't. So the candor system, to score the candor system, we assign negative point values. So mm. when we see spin, so they say, uh, you know, we are the leading company in our industry. And so we'll say, okay, but is this you saying it or is it a third party saying this? <laughs> you know, you haven't fully supported your statement. Uh, so we're going to deduct three points for that. Or a run on sentence, a run on sentence, you know, where a whole paragraph can be one sentence full of maybe three, four, five ideas. Well, that is obfuscation. It's like, you know, when we were little and we were, knew we were telling a lie <laughs> and we said to our mothers or fathers, we said, well, you know, I really ran all the way home and I know that I kept that money in a very safe place. And, you know, like I always do, but, you know, this happened and that happened. And then I came home and the money was gone. <laughs> oh, Okay, that's right. I, I spent the money to buy a Coca-Cola. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, school. so let me ask you about this because this is generally the first question I get from anybody whenever I talk about this book. They say, wait a second, these letters are not actually written by the CEOs. They're written by PR people. They're written by, frankly, consultants like you who come in and give them advice on how to phrase what they want to say. How do you handle that? Do you think that's true? And if so, how do you handle that in your analysis? Uh, you know, I've never said this before, but that question infuriates me. <laughs> that it's, but it's okay. But it's, it's a real okay. question. I'm glad you're raising it. I'm it's a, you're it's absolutely a question right. that, that literally the second somebody puts that book down, that's what they've said to me. But hold on, these CEOs don't actually write the letters. Well, then my response is number one. Doesn't that tell you something important right away? Well, only if I can tell if they wrote it or not. And I'm not sure. I, I, I assure you, I'll, I'll take anybody, you bring them to me, I'll have them write a letter high in fog, a letter low in fog, and, they, and I'll say, okay, which one of these would you trust? It's as clear as the nose on your face. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is if it's low in fog, it probably came from that person. It probably well, wasn't written came, by some flacky in the, in the PR department. Well, here's how I, okay, here's, here's response number two. Um, not every CEO is blessed with the gift of writing. Sure. The gift. Um, and so what I, what I, the language I've used is, did the CEO author the letter? Did the CEO take accountability? Because I know CEOs who can't write very well, but they work so closely with the people who do, who are skilled in writing, and that letter 
maybe it was crafted by the uh, IR person or the corporate communications person, but that is an authentic letter. You, I've, I know those CEOs, and I know that that letter that they didn't sit down and you know handwrite like Warren does. Uh, uh, that letter represents who they are. And that letter is one that's low in fog. Hmm. So that sounds like that's the real test. Low in fog, low in obfuscation. That equals this is coming from the brain of the person leading this organization, even if they didn't actually sit down and write it. It's coming from the brain, the heart, the soul, the um, energy. It's, it's, you know, again, there's, a, there's an energy that you get. Uh, after the reading, you know, it's interesting, after the reading of the letter, you ask yourself, is this somebody I would trust or not trust with my money? It's, it's an extraordinary method because when you talk about it, I kind of go like, oh, it seems like it could work. I'm just not sure I would be able to tell. Then, <gasps> okay. <laughs> tell me. That, that is, that is, that's like, you just hit pay dirt. You just <laughs> hit pay dirt. Seriously. And this is so important, and particularly in these crazy times where we have people uh, who don't, who who believe BS before they believe truth. So, so I tell the story in the book of uh, my IP lawyer who called me up uh, one day and said, "Laura, did you read Goldman Sachs's letter this year?" I I said, "No. Why are you asking?" He said, "Well, I don't understand it." I said, "Really?" Well, I'll take a look at it. I looked at the letter. It was, you know, again, because I have this training. The first paragraph was magnificent. It clearly stated what had happened. One sentence followed the other logically. There was kind of a beginning. Uh, You know, we all learned this, you know, the, the opening sentence, and then it developed, and there was a closing. And then we got to the next paragraph, and it was like the bus ran off the road. The first sentence, it was full of jargon. It was convoluted. It was run on. The next sentence was run on. I mean, it was like, it was, it was a terror. And uh, what were they talking about in that paragraph? This is 2008. They were talking about how it is, how it was that the fact that Goldman Sachs was a counterparty to AIG had nothing to do with AIG's very expensive bailout by the government. Hmm. Which, which was a problem because, of course, the former head of Goldman Sachs was the Treasury Secretary. So, so I thought, wow, well, there's a smoking gun. <laughs> I didn't. And so I called my IP lawyer back. I said, Stephen, uh, I, you know, look, this is what I found. And so he, he looked at it. He said, well, that's right. That's right. I said, how could you not see that? And he said to me, and this is in answer to your question because I didn't think I was smart enough. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what is it? It's, it's, it's how the, you know, that old story about the emperor's new clothes. And that's why this work is, you know, I've never said this before, but that's why this work is so important and so empowering because we, each of us, in order to become truth tellers, we need to become truth seekers. And we need to be able to trust our, not just, but we need to trust our instincts and that our words will come from those instincts. I couldn't agree more. I think it's incredibly important to have some training and some experience in really analyzing 
what these words are trying to say. Are they trying to confuse us? Are they trying to be clear? And I mean, as somebody trying to learn this whole investing practice thing still, it's, I completely get where your IP lawyer is coming from because when you're somebody with no experience reading these things, it's not obvious. It could have easily been the situation that he was just not understanding it and you were going to call him and say, oh, this is so clear and I'm going to explain it to you. But because you have the perspective and the experience on it, you're able to say, wait a second, this is total fog. I think this is so important. So, so it's, it's wonderful that we're at this point in our conversation because uh, at this time in the his, human history, and remember, human beings have only been around 100,000 years compared to whales who have been around 100 million years. <laughs> um, and think about it. Of all the creatures that exist on this planet, only human beings have developed the ability to create symbolic, to, to, to use symbolic language. Hmm. So uh, other animals have language to, you know, make tools to can kind of communicate emotional feelings and so on with each other. We're learning more and more about that. But no other animal can use language to create things that do not exist in nature. No other animal can create Botox or penicillin <laughs> or hydrogen bombs. Only humans can do this. Think about the power of the gift that we have been given. And what are we doing with this gift? We're using this gift of, of language to, to create the world uh, to actually, in ways that are actually destroying the world and the planet and the, the promise of what it means to be human. And I think that's why what you're doing, I mean, Warren Buffett said you're doing the work of the angels. And I think I agree with him 100%. It's, uh, it, you're giving us a method of holding these people accountable. You're giving us a method to not only choose what we do with our own money, but we can then support those companies and those CEOs that are doing it right, that have candor, that are avoiding fog. And we can take our money away from those that are not. And, and what you just said, uh, Danielle, is really, really important. I've not said this before, but uh, yes, it's, it is uh, holding CEOs accountable, but it's holding ourselves accountable. Mm -hmm. Here is a tool. Here is a tool. Here are insights that are given to us. Are we going to use them or are we going to deny that we can't trust ourselves to know the difference between true words and false words. I can't add anything more to that. That's beautiful. Thank you for being here, LJ Rittenhouse. You're very welcome. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary 
This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.